halfway through the semester and about halfway through our letter. And uh, thus far, what we've seen pretty clearly is that the Galatians uh, are, uh, are off track. And, and Paul's working hard to, to sort of bring them back in. They've, uh, they've received the good news of Jesus, and uh, they've forgotten it. They've sort of lost their grasp on it, and they're, and they're sort of skittering off to the side a little bit. And Paul is working hard to clarify for them what is the gospel. We saw that last week. And how it should be central to their lives with, with no additions added in. Because uh, that's how you go off, off center a bit. And so we spent a lot of time talking about that last week. We talked about it. And, and in short, it means, and this is what we talk about all the time in RUF, that Christianity, that gospel is uh, not about us doing what's right or believing what's right as much as it is God making us right. That's the heart of the gospel of what Jesus has done. And I ended last week's talk by talking about uh, how in the end what we need is, you may remember this phrase, or not, we need, we need to develop an unassailable uh, inner safe place. Anyone remember me using that phrase? Anyone? Make me feel good. One, one nod. Two. Good. Good, good. That's about what I expected. Anyway, um, that we need to develop an unassailable inner safe place inside of us. Uh, where the challenges of life and mistaken ways of thinking won't reach us. We can't really expect a safe place in the world, I'm afraid. But we can have one inside of us. And that's actually what we're going to talk about tonight. I'll call that utter security in some ways. And uh, this week we begin to consider a little bit more the benefits of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done. And tonight we get to talk about security, the security we have because of the gospel. And uh, I do need to warn you, though, but, but when we talk about security, uh, in tonight's passage, it involves having to talk about insecurity, which is something we don't like to talk about. All those things deep down that we don't want anyone to know about. And with Paul, we're going to have to reach deep down and bring them up and expose them. We're, we're going to do that. And as we do so, we're all going to, have to, we're going to have to wade through some of the harsh, hard language that Paul uses, like, well, foolishness and cursing. Uh, but I'm convinced as we do so, we'll, we'll learn some things that are really good for us and hopeful. So I'm going to read Galatians 3, 1 through 14. We're going to skip those two verses there. and Start in verse 1. Right off the bat, no warm and fuzzies. Here we go. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 
so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. All right, I'm going to pray for you to join me. Lord, we pray on this uh, wet night in this busy week that you would help us to see great things in your word. Help us to see how in you, Lord Jesus, we have the promise of spirit, the promise of life, the promise of righteousness. And be kind, Lord, to press these truths into our minds, grant understanding to those that don't yet have it, grant uh, security to those of us that struggle for it. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I would like to point out before I go any further that I am wearing pit colors. <laughs> pit actually has alternative colors. There's an ancient gold as well as a royal Le- or Vegas gold. I don't know. This is more like the ancient gold. Uh, and this is the light powder blue from the 80s, not the newer dark blue, which is lame. They've gone back to the powder blue, which is great. All right, now, now that we've established that, okay. Um, we're going to have to talk about some of the language that Paul uses here, and we don't get very far, two, two words, oh, foolish, before we, become, we get to one that hurts a little bit, like, ah, hard, hard, Paul. And uh, so we've got to talk about how we're foolish, actually, tonight. And uh, we're going to talk about how the Galatians are foolish. We're going to talk about how you're foolish. But I'll go first. I think it's fair that way. I'll go first. All right, so here's an example. Uh, When I was a boy, and if you know much about me, I grew up in rural Virginia. Boy in rural Virginia, this should be good uh, with foolishness. Um, I don't know how old I was. I'm going to guess I was somewhere between 7 and 10. But like almost almost any boy in those ages, I really wanted to be like my dad. He had all the things that I wanted to be. He was a man, and he was big. And, uh, and like all the guys, and then that's pretty much it when you're like seven. Um, and uh, he had some pals in the neighborhood, and they would get together, and sometimes they would work, and sometimes they would talk. And all the things they did, and all the things they talked about, I wanted to do. I wanted to grow up and be big and run chainsaws and talk knowledgeably about sports. And uh, so I was sort of like the, the junior apprentice uh, member of the of the men neighborhood club, and and I think in lots of ways they just expected me to be there, and I probably fit in and belonged more than I thought I did. On this one particular evening, though, we were standing around, they were standing around, I was there, around the back of a pickup truck, which is what you do in the south, and uh, that was a joke. <laughs> they, <laughs> they do other things too, but I don't know what they are, and they were talking about I don't know what. And I don't know why I decided to do what I did. I thought about it a lot over 30 years. Um, but I suspect that in my, in my boyish heart with those grown-up men, it was a desire to impress them. It was a, a desire born out of a little bit of insecurity that I needed to prove myself to them, to show off a little bit. And I, I decided that the perfect way to do that would be to do a backflip off the back of the truck. Now, there's a lot of faulty reasoning that goes into that decision. Uh, Upon further contemplation many years later, and knowing those men, I'm pretty sure if I had executed it flawlessly and landed it perfectly, they would have probably turned to my dad and said, Bates, you got a weird kid. (laughs) And that would have been about it, actually. Uh, Second way in which my thinking and plans were faulty is I had never done a backflip. <laughs> I'd never done it on a, 
on a springboard in the pool, never done on a trampoline. And actually now, 43 years in, you know, still pretty fit. I can do a handstand and walk on my hands. I've still never done a backflip. I think it's because the center of gravity of my body is actually in my head. I, I just can't do it. But that didn't stop me that day. And so without a word, I uh, climbed onto the bumper and leapt, and I landed squarely on my head. I mean, squarely on my head. And it takes almost no imaginative work, none, for me to recall vividly the, the stunning pain I felt. Now, you have to remember this is 1985 in the rural south, or 83 or 84, somewhere in there, which explains what happened next, which is nothing. Nothing happened. Uh, these are grown southern men who I imagine now just sort of sit there and looked at me. And once they were reasonably assured I wasn't dead, which is all they really cared about, one of them succinctly, accurately, memorably said this. I quote, pardon his French, that was a damn fool thing to do. Those exact words. And he was absolutely right. It's a very foolish thing to do. General observation for you, friends. You see it every day in college. Things we do out of insecurity are usually stupid. It's just true. Today in my text message, I used the word silly because I know the word stupid might be offensive to some of you. Paul uses a harder word, foolish. In, in both words, stupid and foolish, we're not actually indicating that you're unable to think. We're not talking about the capacity for thought. No, it's actually much more like, no, no, you actually know. Like, you, should, you ought to know better. That's what Paul is saying. You ought to know better. Your brain works, but you're not thinking. And uh, that's what's going on here. The Galatians are acting and living out of insecurity. And they're altogether foolish. They ought to know better. They've, they've forgotten and they failed to grasp all that Jesus has done for them. And it's making them foolishly think that they have to finish the work. They have to do extra to fit in, to belong, to appease God. And this is born out of their insecurity. And this leads to greater insecurity. And uh, what we're going to see tonight is when we see Jesus and trust Jesus, believe in him and his loving work, we find security. I'll say that again, more simply. When we see and believe Jesus' loving work, we find security. Now, I said I was going to like dig deep in and bring up some of those insecurities and put them on display and expose them. But I don't think I'm really doing it all that much. I think Paul's doing it. And so I'll, I'll talk about three of them tonight. The first is this. Is it enough? Another way of saying, am I enough? And uh, secondly, am I in? Do I belong? Am I in? And then lastly, am I loved? All right. And uh, the first one's going to be long. The second one's going to be shorter. And the last one's going to be really short. Just so you know where we're going. So first, is it enough? And in some ways, I think this might be the quintessential insecure question of our day and age right here. Am I enough? Am I doing enough? Have I done enough? Um, Kelly's used a term. I can't remember where she got it. But we, people that struggle with this live with a deficit mentality. I don't have enough. I'm not doing enough. 
and I need to do more? The answer to is it enough is no, never. There's always more that I should, could be doing. And uh, in, in this brief passage, Paul comes at them with this knowledge of what he knows about them. They once got it. He says this in verse 1. Hey, I remember, I remember, I remember seeing it on your face. You saw Jesus publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, a little bit of thought, you'd think, how did that happen? Because Jesus was crucified in the 30s, and this was written in the 50s, and Paul never went to Galatia until much later. But, but so they weren't there, to make that clear. They weren't there. But what Paul is saying is, hey, we came and preached the gospel, and we preached Jesus crucified. That's your hope, as one of my pastor friends put it. Hope of the world, naked Jew on the cross. That's our, that's our message. And, and you got it. You got that the only way you were going to be right with God is if someone died for you and lived for you. And you understood it. I saw it. You got it. You understood it. You embraced it. And when they did that, Paul goes on. He's sort of implying here what they know. You, you received a package, a gift. There's two things in that package. It's a, it's, a, it's a lovely gift. It's got two wonderful things in the package. The first, we looked at this a lot last week, is that uh, when they trusted in Jesus, they received the favor of God. Uh, Paul sort of just brings it up here in this text. He declares it. Uh, he, he says in verse 6, it's being counted as righteous. In verse 8, he calls it uh, being justified. Last week, we talked about this in great detail. But the short of it is, is when you trust in Christ, he receives your sin, you're forgiven. You're given his righteousness, and God views you as though you have Jesus' perfect record. That is, you are declared right. You have his favor. They've received this gift by sheer grace. They did nothing to deserve it whatsoever. First gift, lovely gift. Second gift that Paul refers to the Galatians receiving is that of the Spirit. He says in verse 2 and 3 and 14, hey, you received the Spirit. Now, he says it in ways like, they're a little condemning. Did you not receive the Spirit? But the point is, they did. They received it. And here Paul's saying, not only did God declare you right, but when you trusted in, in Jesus, the Spirit moved in. And, and the Spirit didn't wait for you to tidy yourself up before it moved in. No, when it began, verse 2, having begun by the Spirit, when your life was still a mess, you barely believed in anything, the Spirit moved in. And, and the Spirit was with you. God came down to, to live with you for the sake of fellowship, to be near you, and then began the work of making you beautiful like <laughs> Jesus. So here's the twofold gift. The first, theological talk, is justification. God legally declares you right because you trust in Jesus. And then, secondly, sanctification, these are fancy theological words, uh, he began to work in you to make you beautiful like Jesus. One is how he sees you and treats you. The other is the reality that you begin to live into every day as you become more beautiful like Jesus. That's the work that the Galatians received. It's a beautiful package, all by grace. If you know that, that the Galatians got that, then what happens next would make you understand why Paul's so upset. They've received this wonderful gift. And somehow they've come to the conclusion this is what Paul is getting at in verses 2, 3, 4, and 5. He gave me a great gift. He forgave all my sins. He declares me righteous. He's at work in me to make me beautiful like Jesus. But I've got to finish this myself. I'll just call it the, I've got to finish this foolishness. That's the kind of foolishness they have. I have to finish this foolishness. 
And uh, he, you know, Paul says here, based on this gift you have, let me ask you one question. In the Bible, when, when someone says, let me ask you one question, that means watch out. It's, what it's code word for watch out. When Jesus says, let me just ask you a question. Duck. Um, and, uh, and, and Paul here launches into a sharp, hypothetical interrogation. Um, but the heart of his question is in, in verse uh, 3 here. Having begun by the Spirit, which you didn't earn, are you going to be perfected by the flesh? Having, having started this whole thing surely by grace, are you going to finish it by your own works? Is it God's gracious work in you or your own earning it kind of performance work by which you are made right and making yourself right? And for the Galatians, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, it's, it's a particular weird kind of cultural thing they're being asked to do. People have come in and said, hey, you really got to, if you're really going to be mature in Christ, if you're really going to finish it, be the kind of person you need to be, then you've got to keep these Old Testament laws regarding what foods you eat and who you hang out with, and you've got to be circumcised. You've got to take these certain rights and have these sort of kinds of behavior. That's pretty strange to us. And so those aren't our particular uh, temptations. But we have our own. And it breaks down like this. For most of us, it's either effort or epicness. Maybe for some of you, it's both. And uh, for effort, it might be this. Um, and you may even hear this. You may have grown up with this, or you may hear it on campus in other groups or other churches or some material you read. Um, if you're going to be a really mature Christian, if, if God's really going to be pleased with you, then you, you have to do street evangelism. You've got to get out there and share the gospel with people, whether they like it or not. Or uh, you really have to go on mission trips and, and uh, share the gospel with the lost. You, you really have to have a burden for racial justice and mercy, or you're not a Christian. Or uh, you have to... Um, Oh, I can just make them up. There's a bazillion of them. You have to have an hour quiet time every day or you really don't love Jesus. Like Any number of those things that are effort-based, if they're on the wrong side of the equation, trust in Jesus plus this makes me right with God, you're in trouble. It doesn't go there in the equation. And uh, you're trusting in your own efforts. It's also true with epicness. This is a particular kind of new temptation. Uh, that's sort of new here. And uh, I think it was old in the Bible too. It's in Colossians. But it's like this. And Paul sort of brings it up in verse 5. You expect God to do great things. Miraculous, powerful, wonderful things. Things that give you the willies. That make the hair stand up on your neck. It's awesome. Epic. And if it doesn't happen often enough, you wonder if you're doing something wrong. I've got to have the right number of emotions, thrills, happiness, joy, feel goods, and great things have to be happening or I'm doing something wrong. And, friends, the Bible doesn't promise that. I mean, it happens. But either way, if you think the equation is this, Jesus saved me, and then I need to work by my effort and have enough epic things in my life, and then Jesus will be pleased with me and accept me, that's all wrong. You're trying to finish it on your own. And that's foolish. It's foolish. It's like this. Let me give you an everyday example. It's not everyday, because if it was everyday, it'd be really bad. It's more like a every third trip example um some of you know i have four kids some of you know i have a minivan it's another way of saying i'm not a cool dad anyway um we have one kid who's got a flair for the dramatic and uh occasionally as we're driving if she realizes we're in a place she's never been or she picks up that we have never been there 
she will say, in all seriousness, with great dramatic flair and urgency, Oh no, we're lost! <laughs> and she's almost inconsolable. Almost inconsolable. It's, uh, it's really puzzling. And frankly, a little disconcerting. Because we're not lost. Yeah. We have a GPS. We know our way around. We've, she's never experienced lostness with us. She's never been lost before. She has no reason to thank this. So it's a, it's a little confounding. But, but what if, what if, in that state of insecurity, insecurity, she decided, I can take care of this. And she unbuckles herself <laughs> from her uh, car seat and walks up and, and brushes me aside and says, I will take over now. <laughs> Is there a word for that? Can you think of a word for that? Paul has a word. It's called foolishness. That's the word, right? But, but Paul is saying that's exactly what the Galatians are doing. Jesus has saved you purely by grace and given you his spirit to live in you to make you more like Jesus. And you think you've got to finish it. That's foolish. It's crazy. And, uh, man, to, to know that it's not all up to us to finish is liberating. It's liberating. There is something you're called to do. And, and we are called to do good works, and we are called to hopefully experience some epic, wonderful things. But, but we don't get them on, by, by trying to do them. Uh, instead, through our life with Jesus, lived by faith, we experience them and grow in those things. Here's the answer, or here's the question. The original question was, is it enough? Are you enough? Are you doing enough? What else do you need to do? And, and Paul actually has only one answer here that you really need to hear. And it is the word here. <laughs> what you're called to do, friends, is hear the gospel. So what Paul is saying to the Galatians, I think, is you've heard it, you've seen it, but somehow you've stopped hearing it. You're not thinking right, and therefore you need to hear it again. So he's giving it to them again. And that's what we all need. We all need, whether we believe or not, to see and hear the good news of the gospel. Because we're prone to forget it. We're prone to think it's up to us. We're prone to go off the tracks. So we've got this internal thing that takes us off center. And uh, that's why in RUF we, we do this. We talk about the gospel over and over. And so I would say this. If, if you're a Christian, you've trusted in Jesus, and you're not sure RUF is for you, that's okay. But find a place that preaches the gospel and go there regularly. Regularly. Uh, don't go to a place, place that preaches your awesomeness or a place that preaches your effort or a place that's aimed for epic experiences. It's okay if those things happen. Go to a place that preaches the gospel. If you don't hear anything about Jesus dying, you're probably not in a great place. And if you don't like what I just said, come and talk to me. That's fine. I'll go and talk to you and whoever else you want me to talk to. But I'm convinced of this. If we don't hear this message and get it right, we will be plagued by the insecurity of, am I enough? Does God love me? Am I doing enough? Secondly, along with this, you've got to hear the gospel. Secondly, stop listening to yourself. Stop listening to yourself. Start talking to yourself. And by that I mean stop. Your own internal self-dialogue, unless you're a narcissist, is I'm not doing enough. I'm not enough. I don't measure up. I've got to do more. That's your internal self-talk. And if you're a Christian in Jesus, I need you to change the soundtrack, or the disc, or whatever it is that you use nowadays, your MP3, and, uh, and, uh, and play this message over and over. 
I've trusted in Jesus, and therefore I've received a gift. He has declared me right. No one can change that. And secondly, he's moved in by his spirit. And even if I'm a bloody mess, he's promised by his spirit to work in me and make me right. And he's promised he will never leave me. I need to play that on your loop. That's what's true of you, whether you feel like it's true or not. If you trusted Jesus, those things are true of you. Stop listening to your not enoughing and listen to the good news of Jesus. All right, I promised two really short messages, and I've really got to make them short. The second great insecurity that plagues the Galatians and plagues us is simply the question, am I in? Do I belong? And Paul's simple answer to this in verse 7 is, if you trust Jesus, you're in by faith. Know then, it's those of faith who are sons of Abraham. You know, if you're an Old Testament believer, you're a believer in the Bible, son of Abraham, you can't get any more in. Your family. Paul's simply saying, when you trust Jesus, you're declared just, you're accepted into the family. You belong. No fine print. No strings attached. And the Galatians are plagued by a particular kind of foolishness, the I forgot I'm in foolishness. Others have come along and told them, actually, that's not enough. What you've done is not enough. You've actually got to work hard. You've got to act Jewish, eat Jewish, take the Jewish sign if you're actually going to be part of the family. And Paul's response to this is, wait, 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 wait. You're talking about they have to do this to be a son of Abraham? Let's, let's talk about Abraham. And, and so Paul just simply points him to Abraham and says, let's think, let's think about Abraham's example. Abraham... This is Genesis 15. He quotes Genesis 15 up here. Abraham in Genesis 15 was a wandering pagan. Didn't trust in God. And God came to him and made a fabulous promise. I'm going to bless you and make you a great nation. The problem was he was 80 years old and uh, didn't have any kids. And at 80 years old, it's hard to make kids. So it's a fabulous promise. And, um, And the text tells us that Abraham believed God. And according to the text up there, according to Genesis 15, God does something amazing. He credits it to him as righteousness. That's the same message we've been talking about for two weeks. Abraham believed God. He didn't do a thing. There wasn't a thing to be done. And God said, you believe me? You're righteous. You're mine. You're just. And there was no Old Testament law for Moses to keep. That didn't come for another couple hundred years. There was no right to keep. That comes much later. Simply by belief, Abraham was declared righteous. And Paul says, hey, that's true of all of us. This is God's great plan for how he's going to bring everyone in. This is how God's going to bless the world. That we hear the good news of what God has done, and we believe it, and we're declared right, and we're brought in. We belong. If I was a cool pastor, what I would do here is give you a really compelling contemporary example of, of the cost and devotion and sacrifice, maybe even the, the dues and initiation rites, it's often involved in us trying to get in, whether it's joining a team or joining a fraternity sorority or joining the upper echelon of some kind of club. It's costly. It hurts. It takes dedication, right? But I'm not a cool pastor. So I'm going to share a really, really old story about a guy named Abraham. Okay. So in Genesis 15, God comes to this really old guy and says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And Abraham's like, oh, I'm really old. I don't have any kids. I don't. I stopped thinking about even doing this thing that makes babies a long time ago. But you made the promise. I will believe you. And because he trusts God, God declares him righteous. 
And, and then what happens after that, it's pretty crazy, pretty interesting. You can read this in Genesis 15 yourself. God and Abraham enter into a covenant, an agreement, and they go through this ceremony. This is the ancient Near East equivalent of cross my heart and hope to die. Only it involves killing animals and really meaning it. Okay? That's what happens there. They, they kill animals and they really mean it. Like, we'll say cross my heart and hope to die, but you don't hope to die, right? Like, um, and so what happens here is... Uh, this happened in all kinds of promise-keeping treaties in the ancient Near East. Abraham would have known what was going on. This happens. When kings make treaties, this is what they would do. They take animals, they sacrifice them, cut them in half, lay them on sides, and they walk through the middle. The two of them walk through the middle, right? And what they're saying as they do that is, so be it to me. May I be cut in half, broken in half, cut down like this if I break my half of the covenant. That's what's going on there symbolically. Okay, so Abraham was new, used to this. He expected that he and God would walk through these, you know, sacrificed animals together. But that's not what happens. God puts Abraham on the bench as a spectator, and God himself walks alone through the sacrificed animals in Genesis 15. And when he does that, what God is saying is, if I break the covenant, so be it. May I be, may I be torn asunder. But also, if you break the covenant... <coughs> May I be cut down? Man, no one does that. No one does that. No God does that. No person does that. But the God of the Bible does that. And that's how you can know, without lifting a finger or doing a thing, that when Jesus says, if you believe me, you're in, that's how you can know you're in. (laughs) He was cut down for you. He did everything that was necessary for you to get in. It's not up to you. When he says you're in, you're in. Last, and very briefly, insecurity whispers to us, is it enough? He's given us all we need. Are we in? He did everything we need to bring us in. Lastly, insecurity whispers to us, are we loved? And uh, I have a challenge in front of me. I have to convince you that the last four or five verses here is about God's love. When, when you read it, all you hear is cursing, right? It's all about curses. All right, well, in verse 10, Paul introduces us to the reality of the curse. He says in verse 10, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. And uh, what Paul is saying here is if we think we have to perform and keep the law to please God, we need to know some things. Verse 10, part 2, we need to know it's an all or nothing enterprise. You don't get to pick and choose. You don't get partial credit. You have to fulfill the law completely and perfectly. And if you break part of it, you break it all. That's the way it works. Sorry. It's like this. God has offered mankind two ways. You can try to earn it, or you can come under the protection and shelter of my earning it for you. I'm offering you my favor. Do you want it? And someone says, no, I'll do it myself. And God says, fine. The standard is 100% perfection. That's what was achieved over here. You have to do the same. And because you choose to reject this, you've set yourself in a posture of defiance against the God who's offering you another way. And the result of that, Paul says, is no one can keep the law, therefore I'm sorry you're doomed to fail. And the curse is you will fail. You will be condemned. You can't do it. You can't be perfect. No one can. Paul tried a lot. You can go back to the earlier part of this letter when he talks about that in great detail and how he failed. So um, Paul is saying here, that uh, something very important, that it is natural for us to misunderstand what the law is for. 
that the law, God's rules, was given to us as a mirror. A mirror. That uh, God's law, like a mirror, shows us what we're really like. It shows us what God is like, but when we hold it up, it also shows us what we're like. We're like, oh, I don't love people. I thought I was doing pretty well to understand what coveting was, and then I realized I am never content. I want everyone else's everything all the time. And we begin to see, like, I don't measure up. I'm not like God after all. I'm not the person I thought I was. And that's what the law is for. But if you're trying to use the law to get right, it's not going to work. What we need is soap. We need to get cleansed. The law is not soap. It's a mirror. We need someone to cleanse us and fix us. And that's what Jesus does. That's what he does on the cross. And that's what Paul is writing about in verse 13. Succinctly, quickly, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. And what Paul is saying here in, uh, in this particular language is, on the cross what Jesus did was he willingly took the combined punishment of all that trust in him. Everyone that tried their whole life long to measure up by their own works, but actually spent most of the time doing whatever they wanted, and then trying to please God by their actions, he took all that. He took that curse on himself and suffered what we deserved. And we learn elsewhere in this, whole, in this book that we are granted his righteousness. He gets our curse. We get his blessedness. Paul calls us blessed here. We're counted right. We're treated like Jesus. We're brought into the family. We get all the great things that Jesus deserved. And uh, that's the good news here. That's how we can know that uh, we're loved. Jesus did this for us. I have a last illustration. Here we go. Planet Earth. (laughs) Season, I don't know because I never watched it. Episode Jungles. So you should know I had this episode before Fall Conference. Wow. Yeah. I did. But it was still Sean Slate's from like five years ago. So, all right. So here you go. In this episode, uh, we encounter something called the Cordyceps. It's a fungal parasite that lives in the jungle. And uh, it's an amazing and slightly terrifying, no, not slightly, completely terrifying fungus. And uh, what happens is when, when this fungal spore lands on this particular kind of ant, it will bore its way through its exoskeleton or whatever the thing is called, into its body and eventually make its way to the ant's brain. Once there, it begins to take over. Uh, Other ants can notice it's acting weird, but one thing the fungus does is that directs the ant to climb the nearest high thing, a tree, a plant, and to latch on with a death bite to the underside of a leaf. And there, the ant never moves again, while the fungus slowly but surely consumes the rest of the interior of the ant, eats it from the inside out. And over a number of weeks, the fungus grows, sprouts out of the head, always the head, very strangely, always straight out of the head of the ant. And after a few weeks, it blooms, and spores rain down from above on the ant colony below potentially destroying the entire community. Like I said, amazing and terrifying, right? It's pretty amazing and scary. So, uh, spiritually speaking, this is the curse of sin. One person had it, we all got it, and we can't get away from it. We can't fix it ourselves. 
And if we think we can outperform it to fix it, it's not going to work. The law may show us that we have a problem, but it can't take away the problem. Incredibly, though, a colony of ants can recognize that one of its members has been affected with a spore. And when it does, one of their ants is sent to remove the other ant, pick him up, and carry him out of the colony, thereby rescuing the whole colony from the curse of this parasite. But in the process, almost certainly sacrificing itself to the spore, right? In other words, one bears the curse away so the others can live. And that's what Jesus has done. He came to live and die and bear the curse away for us. All the condemnation and death that we deserve. And he was condemned that we might die. And, and it's personal, friends. It's, it's not just some anonymous ant for a colony. The text tells us he did it for us. He did it for his people. And, and Paul can say in verse 20 in chapter 2, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I said last week, I want you to be able to say that for yourself. And you can say that for yourself. If you realize that Jesus gave himself for you. He gave himself for you. You can know that personally. That he loves you and gave himself for you. When you do that, friends, and you believe it, that's the key. It is the key to the deep, inner, safe place. It's yours. No one can take it away. He is enough. He has brought you in and no one can take you out. And he loves you. All right, I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, we pray you would grant us 